Welcome to Chatting Wine, the video and podcast series where we talk about all things wine related, keeping it simple, interesting and informative. Check out our Instagram page if you want to see more details. Cheers! Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Chatting Wine. Uh, I am pleased to announce we've got Lee Isaacs back again. Lee, say hi. Hey, how are we doing? Third, third time's a charm, so they say. Oh, what an absolute joy. <laughs> um, third time, going on 30, we'll be doing a lot. Um, so today we're going to cover a really interesting topic, uh, Burgundy. Um, now, I would have imagined most of you would have heard of Burgundy. Um, huge... Uh, wine area in France, um, really important to the wine world. Probably, probably the top three most important wine areas in the world. Um, long history of some superb wines. Um, tend to be a bit more expensive, so drinking it isn't the most affordable. But nevertheless, um, really interesting place to cover. And Lee's going to talk th- us through Burgundy. Um, Lee, firstly, where is Burgundy? So Burgundy is in central eastern France. The, Burgundy kind of breaks down into a couple of subregions. So the first place we include with Burgundy is Chablis. So it's not physically connected in the, t- in the sense that it's contiguous or it's joined up. But we talk about Chablis. And Chablis, uh, so just let me get my compass right, southeast of Paris. Burgundy, what I call Burgundy True, so the piece of land that's kind of one contiguous strip, that runs roughly between Dijon and Macon. Uh, and that's about 120 kilometre long stretch of land but in sort of central eastern france so effectively it's a strip in central eastern france yeah i, th- I think that's a good way of of thinking about it if, if you look at it on a map it yeah it's sort of fairly long and relatively thin and what are the great varieties grown in burgundy so i, I think i'm going to start by saying with with burgundy a lot of people immediately go oh no Burgundy's really complicated and horrible and difficult and if once you start really delving into Burgundy, it does become those things. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and go, no, Burgundy's dead easy. It, it isn't. But if you take a surface overview of Burgundy, actually, it's relatively simple. It's just how deep you I dive. Agree. So the, the yeah. first place to start is what grapes are we using? Because if you understand the grapes, you can start to understand the, the wines. So to keep it very simple, if you're drinking a red wine from Burgundy, it is a Pinot Noir. Okay, that's it. If you're, if you're drinking red, it's Pinot Noir. If you're drinking white, you're drinking Chardonnay. That's it. Now, Burgundy does it? grow... That's 100%. That's every, that's every, uh, every red is Pinot Noir, every white is Chardonnay. Well, Burgundy grows um, another red grape variety called Gamay, which we associate with Beaujolais. Now, Beaujolais is actually on the bottom end of Burgundy, and some maps include it kind of almost as if it is Burgundy. Uh, the Beaujolais, of course, they love that. The Burgundians don't. Um, I think Beaujolais is great, just in case there's any ambiguity there. So within Burgundy, there's like a little bit of Gamay growing. Uh, there's a couple of places in the south where you can buy a wine that might be a bit of a blend of Pinot Noir and Gamay. But already I feel that we're kind of starting to get too complicated because we're starting to talk about something really specific. Not 99.9% is 99. Pinot Noir, 99.9% is Chardonnay. Absolutely. The other white grape, cool. just to qualify, there's another white grape in Burgundy, which is called Aligote. Again, it, 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 you, you, you don't really see that blended with Chardonnay. You can see some Aligote, but let's keep it simple. Red is Pinot Noir, white is Chardonnay. Okay. And how does it work? I mean, where's most of the Pinot Noir grown? Where's, where's the most of the Chardonnay grown? 
So both of these grapes grow throughout the region. So what I'm going to do is get kind of this is the way I structure my approach to, to teaching. I always go, right, let's get the grape first, then let's get the sort of the land or the region. So what we do with Burgundy, Burgundy breaks down into kind of three, if you will, three subregions. And each of those regions can be broken down into lots and lots of much smaller places. The top part of Burgundy, Burgundy True, is called the Cote d'Or, which is short for the Cote d'Orient. And that's because the Cote d'Or is, is, broadly speaking, it's an east-facing limestone escarpment. So east-facing to the east, the Orient gets the best rays of the morning sun and all of that. In the Cote d'Or, that splits down into two more areas. But the Cote d'Or is where you get your super-duper absolute quality wines. So the Cote d'Or splits in two. The top part, the northern part of the Cote d'Or, is called the Cote de Nuit. And that's where you get the really super-duper Pinot Noirs from. The bottom part of the Cote d'Or is called the Cote de Bone. And that's where you get your super-duper Chardonnays from. Again, anybody listening to this who, who does know Burgundy is probably going, Lee, you're missing out loads of stuff. I am, but I, I want to sort of try and keep it fairly simple. Once you head south from the Cote d'Or, you hit a region called the Cote Chalonnais, and south of that you hit, hit the Maconnais. Um, the Chalonnais and the Maconnais, they do the more, the more, if we will, the, the cheaper wines, the more entry-level wines. There's, there's a lot of Chardonnay grown in those two areas. The Cote d'Or does the stuff that tends to be a bit more expensive. Pinot Noir does, that's a really good place to start. So Pinot Noir tends to be slightly lighter in body, tends to be slightly lower in alcohol. And when I say lower in alcohol, it's rarely 15% or 14.5%. It can be in the New World. In Burgundy, you would expect that to be 13, 13.5% alcohol. So it, it's what I, I suppose I would call it a medium-bodied wine at most. It's never going to be a big power like an Argentine Malbec or an Australian Shiraz. Flavour-wise, I think there's kind of two distinct sets of flavours for Red Burgundy. So, again, if we know Pinot Noir, we know that Pinot Noir, we would broadly describe with flavours of sort of strawberry, raspberry, cherry, lovely red fruit. And that's classic for Pinot Noir and classic for Burgundy. Often these wines will be sold with a little bit of age, or you might drink them with a little bit of age, in which case they develop this, this lovely character that the French call sous-bois, which is kind of like forest floor or what kind of wild forest fruits, maybe slightly mulchy slightly earthy with a great deal of age these wines develop a, a character that we call barnyard or farmyard and I, i'm going to give you a quote here from somebody i used to work with at the Oxford wine company he left uh, a, a while ago i think he's still in the wine trade a, 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 an old colleague called ian and he wasn't a burgundy fan uh, and i am a burgundy fan and excuse the profanity here, you may wish to edit or bleep it out, or you might leave it in, who knows, we live dangerously. Uh, I, I asked Ian why he didn't like Burgundy, um, and he answered with, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, he answered with, I'll say one thing for Burgundy, Burgundy has managed to convince the rest of the world that a wine smelling of shit is a good thing. And it, it's That's weird, so because <laughs> when, we talk, when we talk about taste descriptors, right, I always imagine that what I'm trying to do is talk to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to make you a smoothie, right? So if I if I said, hey, George, I'm going to make you a smoothie, first of all, you'd go, get out of my kitchen. How do you know where I live? <laughs> I'd say, look, I'm going to make you a smoothie, right? And I'm going to make it with raspberries, cherries, a vanilla pod, maybe a little bit of cinnamon. You'd sort of go, oh, sounds quite nice, doesn't it? If I said to you, hey, George, I'm going to make you a smoothie. I'm going to make it out of an old leather boot. 
some soil that I got from my friend's farm, a bit of straw, the stub end of the cigar I was smoking last night, and some mushrooms. And some shit. You go, I- I'm putting you in... And some shit. I'm putting you in an asylum, you <laughs> lunatic. But that's what Redberg, Red Burgundy at its best does this range of flavours that when you write them down on paper, they don't, you know, they don't sound like things you would naturally consume. A bit like... You know, old Riesling smells of petrol. Where you never go. Do you know what I fancy having on my dinner tonight? A bit mm. of petrol. You, you don't. But when that's in the wine and it's surrounded by everything else the wine is doing, it becomes something so much more. This is what red burgundy does. Most red burgundies, when they're designed, like on the on the shelf, if you will, because we don't sell wine. We drink a lot of wine far too young in the UK. I and not just the UK, all over the world, to be honest. If you sort of most burgundies that you're going to buy, if you buy it off, you know, whether it's the supermarket shelf or you, you're good independent. Those wines probably aren't going to have that level of age that will give you all of those flavours I've just described. So those younger wines, it's, it's all about the red fruit. In Red Burgundy, they do use oak. The very best producers know how to do that. So you often get lovely bright raspberry cherry flavours, maybe something slightly or, like autumnal fruits with a little bit of kind of vanilla and sort of cedar flowing through them. Um, they tend to be quite soft because Pinot Noir doesn't have a thick skin so it's not a big tannic you know how tannins really dry you out red burgundy isn't like that because it's Pinot Noir and Pinot Noir is a much softer variety in that sense mm. and it, it gets very expensive doesn't it yes it does so again without sort of wanting to go too detail heavy because I don't think that's the purpose here burgundy is is quite small so if we look at Bordeaux, Bordeaux is somewhere in the region of 120,000 hectares planted, give or take. Uh, I think we established on a previous podcast that I didn't know actually how big a hectare was in terms of how many metres that is. <laughs> but we did establish the international yardstick of its two football pitches um, or a lot of snooker tables. Right. So Bordeaux is about 120,000 hectares. Burgundy is only 27,500. So that's quite small, given that these wines are seen as being some of the very best in the world. Mm. So as a result, a lot of the producers are very small. So they have a much smaller scale of production. And these wines over, you know, decades and centuries have become very well known, very sought after. And of course, supply and demand that pushes the price right up. So, you know, but red for me, red burgundy, to be honest, and this is a very broad statement, if you're spending less than, I don't know, maybe 40 quid, there's a, there's a chance you might be disappointed. And the reason you might be disappointed is Pinot Noir is very difficult to, to grow. It's very difficult to get Pinot Noir to give you what you want it to give you. So it's quite a fussy grape variety. It's very vintage dependent. So if you just get even a slightly off vintage, Pinot Noir can really go back into itself. So if you spend 40 quid or below, quite often you're getting the real lower end of what Burgundy produces in terms of red wines. If you want to get the very best of what Burgundy produces, you're talking thousands of pounds a bottle. You know, the, the very it's also, best of. It's also become a bit of a luxury item, hasn't it? It's become something that people want to buy, and so the prices inflate naturally due to that as well. I think it's it's good to be seen with a Burgundy. Um, oh, definitely. Fancy. I always compare it to sort of buying a pair of shoes. So like you go to the local sports direct and buy a pair of shoes for £25, but then you buy the same pair that's got a Nike tick on and it's suddenly a pair of Air Max that costs you £120. So I think it's actually a lot, a lot of it is down to marketing, but you're right, it's the small vintages, um, the, the summers can be can be tricky um, and, and 
those, those come into it but i think marketing is is one big thing as well yeah there's a real you know there's a real cult status to, to burgundy and I, I had a really interesting conversation with a good friend of mine who actually works at the Oxford wine company um and he was saying this idea that there's a lot of people who see that the bottle of wine is burgundy and instantly go well i've got to be seen with this this is going to be good and and you taste the wine and you just go well it's great because it's burgundy right. whereas th- this particular friend he's not a big lover of burgundy in fact he's not a big lover of pinot noir it's not it's just not the style of wine he likes he's able to sort of sit there and go yeah but this isn't actually this wine isn't that good there's and you know he knows what he's doing so he can sort of he, he's not just saying that because he to be contentious he'll say well look you know the acidity's off or there's not enough fruit or something like that but there's so many people who kind of go yeah but it's burgundy so it's kind of, this is allowed yeah. it's supposed to be this way so you know burgundy's difficult in the sense of it's not um what's the word i'm what's the word i'm looking for it's not burgundy isn't the most consistent wine and that's because of the, the grape varieties being used and the the fact that where they're growing you get a lot of vintage variation so burgundy can be, can be quite difficult to navigate in that respect can you have different levels of quality in burgundy as well most definitely and that i, I think really is where burgundy almost comes into its own in terms of the way they legislate things and this is potentially where burgundy gets really complicated but again if you take a surface view it's quite easy and it's then delving in so i'm, I'm going to break this down really quickly uh, and again, I'm missing out a lot of finer points, but that's not the point of this conversation. So there's there's effectively four levels of quality in Burgundy. The starting point, which accounts for about 52% of production, is what we call regional wine. So when you pick up the bottle, it might just say Van de Bourgogne, or it might say um, Oak Cote de Bone. So the fruit has come from a quite a wide area. So that wine is probably okay but it's not the best quality Burgundy can produce. But as a result, it's the the most affordable wines. So that's what we would call regional. The next level of quality is what we would call commune. So that's where they might name uh, a specific village. So I'm going to use this example of Vaughan Romany. So Vaughan Romany is in the Côte de Nuit. It's a relatively small area. So you could buy a wine that says Vaughan Romany, on it and all of the fruit has come from whatever the boundary of that village is so that will be in terms of von romany it will be very good it's it's a very very high quality village in burgundy but you can see that what's happening is they've gone from sourcing the grapes to make the wine from a very wide area to a much smaller more defined area which in theory means that the quality becomes better and the expression of the wine becomes better what you then do is you move, move to the third tier which is taking that idea again. So the, the area from which the fruit is being sourced becomes smaller. So things become more specific. And we move into what we call Premier Cru. Now, Premier Cru, all that means is it's a defined vineyard. So it's a very, very specific piece of land from where the fruit is sourced. So if I continue with the Von Romany example, you might see a bottle of wine that says Von Romany, Premier Cru, Claude Reyes. And Claude Reyes is the name of the specific vineyard. And the reason they do this is they know that, you know, Burgundy was populated by Cistercian monks in the 12th century. And if there's one thing the monks are good at, it's record keeping. So there's records that go all the way back to the 12th century that sort of say, oh, this piece of land here consistently produces wines that do this specific thing. So it's similar to saying USA, Illinois, Chicago. A really good way of thinking about it. Really good way. You're, you're getting more and more specific. 
So if you were to say, what's America like? Oh, well, it's like this. Yeah, but what's Illinois like? Well, actually, we can refine that a bit more and, and, and so on and so forth. So Premier mm. Crew is kind of like your third third level. Okay, and that's there's 135 Premier Crews in Burgundy. That's where it starts to get complicated. Could I name all of them? Not even, not even close. Could barely name 10% of them, to be honest. But that information is written down in a book, so I could find it somewhere if I needed to know it. There's a great quote that, from Einstein. Boring, it would, it would. There's a great quote from Einstein where somebody said to Einstein, what's the speed of sound? And he said, I don't know. And the interviewer said, well, you know, you're the smartest man in the world. He said, yeah, but why should I retain that piece of information? I, I don't need to, I can find that if I need it. I don't need to know that, you know, straight off the bat. Which I think is a really good quote, and it also allows me to go. Well, just because I don't know that doesn't mean I'm not. Yeah, like is, is that your excuse to know nothing and just uh, read from a book? Well, exactly, <laughs> ex- ex- exactly, exactly right. So we've kind of gone through Burgundy. We've gone regional, so big area, commune, smaller area, better quality, premier crew, much smaller area, more defined, better quality. The top level is what we call grand crew, and grand crew is just using the same concept as Premier Crew, but the land is even better. So there are 33 Grand Crew in Burgundy. It accounts for 2% of the total production. So if I just, I suppose, finish off using the Vone Romany example. So Vone Romany is a commune wine. Vone Romany Premier Crew Clode Reyas, specific vineyard, Premier Crew, better. You could also have Vone Romany Grand Crew. There's one called La Grand Rue, or La Grand Rue. So it's a specific plot of land. So when you're buying Burgundy, the whole idea of Burgundy is that you're exploring very specific pieces of land that mean the grapes do certain things when you turn them into wine. And I think that makes that's kind of how I teach Burgundy when I do my WSET teaching and so on. And that kind of seems to be the obvious way of looking at it from a surface level. Perfect. That's great. And we, we, we've covered red. Um, we're, we're running out of time a little bit, but we'll go on to the white. So Chardonnay. Um, Chardonnay, yeah. Where, where, where is it famously grown? And talk me through the style of, of Chardonnay. So the, the, the very best Chardonnays in Burgundy grow in the southern part of the Cote d'Or, which is called the Cote de Bone. So within that, there's sort of some really well-known uh, communes. So the, the famous ones being sort of like Polina Monrochet, Merceau, they're there too. And within that, you find you, you start to break down into Premier Crew and Grand Crew and so on. There's one, actually, I really like, if, if you want to get into what I see as being good white Burgundy, but not necessarily have to spend too much money, down in the south, there's the region called Maconnet. There's a commune down there called Poi Fuise. So Fuise, not to be confused with Poi Fume, which is in Loire. Poi Fuise. And what they do in, in Burgundy that I think they do probably just better than anybody else in the world when it comes to Chardonnay is they use lots of intricate winemaking tools, things like using oak barrels, things like using Lee's Contact. That's the dead yeast after fermentation, and that gives you sort of nice uh, sort of bready characters. Um, and they do this thing called malolactic fermentation, which gives you creaminess. They use all of these little winemaking tools so that the best wines of Burgundy are very pure, they're, they're quite racy and fresh in terms of acidity, but you get lots of lovely characters, maybe like um, obviously kind of peach and stone fruit, but you get this lovely hazelnutty sort of creamy thing coming through. And the very best whites in Burgundy, again, are reasonably expensive, but Poi Fuise, which is down in the south, gives you an idea of that style of wine, but without having to necessarily spend the big bucks. 
now when we talk about oak and chardonnay it's easy to revert to that thing that we used to drink from australia which was like really big and yellow and it tasted like licking the inside of a barrel and it was the color of a yolk of an egg and all of that that's not what burgundy does burgundy is i don't want to say more sophisticated because it sounds like i'm knocking aussie wine but why not it's more sophisticated it's more subtle (laughs) no regrets absolutely not absolutely not um there's no Australians live anywhere near me, so I'll, I'll be fine. Um, it's just, yeah, it's more, I suppose, elegant, more sophisticated, which I'm aware that I'm going into like using really poncy wine terms, which I don't want to do. But it's not a wine that you taste and it gives you everything at once, like a big hit and thanks very much. It just, as you taste that wine while it's in your mouth, these little things start to come out. You know, I, I don't think anyone would argue that the best expression of Chardonnay on the planet is Burgundy. But again, more expensive. But again, more expensive. What Burgundy does, I mentioned with red Burgundy that you tend to have to spend a a bit of money on it. There are white Burgundies that are much more affordable. So we see this thing that we call Macon Village. So all those wines come from in the southern part from the Macon. And you can buy Macon Village for, I don't know, eight, nine, ten pounds. And actually, they're very good. So Burgundy does the the entry-level white really quite well. Entry-level red, I think, is is slightly harder to navigate in terms Mm. of that definite quality. I want to touch on oaking quickly because it's quite a big topic uh, at the moment in the world of Chardonnay because the, it was sort of deemed to be in the last few years over oaked Chardonnay was just it became a thing where people just don't like Chardonnay and they say nope don't like it but actually there's some really delicious Chardonnays coming out of both Burgundy and around the world that are not hugely oaked you know got some nice green apple or citrus to it or some really good mm-hmm. fresh fruit and actually becoming more popular and I it's when I get I'm getting people to try more and more Chardonnay so they don't like Chardonnay but they will like Chardonnay they just don't like that style of Chardonnay which is completely acceptable and I get that and it's and they're quite right but actually I'd say the majority are now are moving from not as heavily oaked to more fresh style I absolutely agree so you know we, we have this thing that we talk about in the wine trade so I've you know I've said this before uh, I don't think I've said it on the podcast is you know I love working the wine trade I adore it it's all I've ever done and I wouldn't do anything else but sometimes I wonder how good the wine trade is at really talking to the people who just drink this for fun so not people who are necessarily that interested but people who just enjoy it I think we're very good at talking to ourselves but I don't think it always works. And again, that's a very broad thing. So there'll be a flurry of emails. I'm not saying that as negatively as it perhaps sounds. <laughs> but we have this thing in the wine trade where we, we make a joke and go, oh, I had a customer today and this customer came in and he said, oh, I, I don't like Chardonnay. It's awful stuff. Uh, but I love Chablis. And then us in yeah, the wine trade go, he, 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 isn't that funny? Chablis is made from Chardonnay. No, do you know what? Ultimately, it's not funny because what that shows is that, is that the wine trade has failed to engage with that individual and explain what it is he doesn't like. Or maybe the individual just didn't listen. That's, again, there's, there's a counterpoint there. And, and what they're meaning what, there really is the, the difference there, he's saying, is Chardonnay, he means the over oak stuff, and Chablis, the fresher green apple sort of it, stuff. Ex- exactly, exactly. So what happened is late 80s, early 90s, Australia blossomed on the market, and their, you know, their wines were affordable in a way that wine had never been before. They were accessible in a way that wine had never been before in terms of it said Chardonnay on the label and it had a very specific place that it came from. So most people, you know, oh, right, South Australia, I kind of have an idea what that is, Chardonnay, okay, I understand that. Whereas Chablis, you know, it doesn't say it's made of Chardonnay and if you don't know your French wine, you sort of go, I don't know what Chablis is. But these wines that came from Australia, they were really big and chewy and huge levels of oak, but of course we'd not experienced that before. So it was natural that we were drawn to it and actually liked it. 
And then eventually the, the way that was being done changed again without going into too much detail. And suddenly the consumer base went, oh, we don't like that anymore. But what had happened, Chardonnay itself had become a brand and that brand was big, over-oaked, chewy, sweet and actually very unpleasant. And it's, we're still having that conversation about, OK, that's just one way of making Chardonnay. Not all Chardonnay is like that. As you've just said, Chardonnay from Chablis is lighter, it's fresher, it's, it's not sweet. You know, it doesn't have those sort of big tropical flavours. It's more uh, apple and steely and pear. And I think what's happened, especially throughout the world, is wine producers have seen that move in consumer tastes. So they've gone, Do you know, we, we've got to stop over-oaking our wines. We've got to, people don't want that anymore. When they did want it, great, they don't now. So I think the good example is, you know, producers in Australia, and it was Australia that sort of pioneered that style, certainly in terms of the UK market. A lot of Australian producers I know and I work with are saying, look, we're, we're toning back our oak. We're either using old oak, which gives you less flavour. Think like using a tea bag several times over. You get less flavour each time. Don't forget, I'm northern, so obviously I reuse tea bags you know, a dozen times. Um, the, the older oak, less flavour, or just not using oak at all. And it's so that we get a better expression of, of what Chardonnay can do. Yeah. But that's it, it is still an ongoing conversation, I think, with a lot of people who don't necessarily realise that. Yeah, um, Lee. That, I think that we'll have to do because we've hit sort of twenty-seven minutes or so. So um, we want to keep it fairly um, sort of uh, not too overcomplicated. So that was Absolutely. a great overview of Burgundy. I mean, there's so much we can talk about, and if you're looking for an in-depth analysis of Burgundy, this isn't the one. This is just a good overview of what we do, of what not what we do. <laughs> I don't do it. Of what Burgundy does, um, and then down the line we will look further into. Cote or whatever it may be and sort of analyse it a bit further but um, Lee once again thank you so much for today um, great to have you on and uh, your explaining is as concise as ever so thank you no thank you very much as you know I, I just enjoy sharing what little I do know about wine I enjoy sharing it so uh, hopefully people enjoy but yeah pleasure to be back thank you very much awesome thanks Lee see you soon cheers take care